Welcome back, my friends, to another episode of the Shamad Podcast. I have been on sort of a, a theme for the last several episodes, talking about this idea of it is the time now for us to be the best Jews we can be, because that is one of the ways we can help aid our brothers and sisters in the IDF in Israel in harm's way in winning this battle against evil. And a couple of ideas I've impressed upon you and discussed with various guests I brought on are two ideas. One is that the Jewish people are one entity. At a spiritual level, we are one. We are like limbs on the same body when we enter this world. So the things we do impact everyone else. And the other idea is that every battle throughout history, going back to you know our, our Tanakh, was one on a spiritual front and a physical front. And a lot of the conversations we have had are about what to do on the spiritual front that can aid our brothers in Israel and in the IDF. And I want to reinforce that. That is important. You know, I saw something the other day where they were interviewing some IDF soldiers who had gone 36 hours without sleep. And it's not because they were binge watching something on Netflix. They were out engaged in very grueling life-threatening situations. And I thought to myself, if they can push themselves at that level, then we can definitely push ourselves in everything we do. So I definitely want to encourage, you know, for those of you who are new to your observance, picking up a mitzvot, you know, whether it's you haven't started keeping kosher, but you tell Hashem, you know what, I'm going to get rid of the selfish, I'm going to get rid of the pork, and I'm doing it, Hashem, because I, I know you you want me to, but because I got so inspired by my brothers and sisters in the IDF. So that mitzvah accrues to them, you know, whether it's doing something like working on your Shabbos observance, like our dear friend David Block shared with us that he gave up Alabama football, which was a big deal for him, in order to show this observance. But if we can take those things and sit there and tell Hashem, I'm doing it because I'm inspired. I want to help out my brothers and sisters, be the best Jew I can be, and it's in their merit. My friends, whatever it may be, starting to wear tefillin. And if you don't know how to get tefillin, you can email me at shema at torchweb.org. I'll help facilitate with the rabbis at Torch, getting you tefillin, whatever it may be, do it in the merit of your brothers and sisters in harm's way in the IDF. That does make a difference. It does have an impact on whether or not they all come home safely to their families. However, I know you guys are itching. You want to be in the physical battle as well. And it's definitely not by just watching the news and scrolling your Instagram account and everything else. You want clarity and knowing exactly what needs to be done. So I have the guy, my friends, eight and run. He is in the intelligence unit of the IDF. I heard him speak on other podcasts. He is a authority figure on this matter. He does need us. So, my friends, I think we are all de facto in the IDF. Stand at attention. Our commander is coming on, and he is going to tell us exactly what we need to do, what we need to know in order to help battle in this war of ideas in the countries where we reside in outside of Israel. Welcome to the Shema Podcast, the podcast for the perplexed, where Torah insights intertwined through personal stories, as well as interviews with leading Torah scholars, demonstrate the empowering qualities of Torah and mitzvot. For more great Torah learning through Torch, the Torah Outreach Center of Houston, go to torchweb.org. Now to the show. Patent. Thank you, Dan, for those warm words. I'm definitely not a commander or authority. 
I'm uh, just another, uh, you know, one of many pieces in this puzzle uh, right now called the IDF. And I'm a random Israeli, you know, self-employed person. I have a job which I love. and But I, I would say that I, I, I do deal with these things a lot in the past decade or so. I'm a tour guide. So you like sometimes get a group and, you know, they have a tension span of like minutes. You know, you can't, you can't go into like, you know, a whole in-depth Middle East uh, discussion about, uh, you know, you have to like, you know, like wrap it up and like, I've explained what Hamas and Fatah differences are in, in like one minute, you know? So, and, and over the years, I, I feel like I've, I've developed like a way like I'm, I also deal a lot with, um, with Middle East studies and, and my work. Like I, I got a lot of geopolitical tours and I think all, all us tour guides have that, you know, yeah, you find yourself on the Gaza border one day, you find yourself on Lebanese border the other day and the Syrian border the other day. I mean, we're, we're, it's very, it's probably very present. It's not like America where you have to travel a uh, transatlantic flight to go and find some Taliban, you know, you have ISIS, Hamas or Hezbollah, take your pick, you know, two hour drive from Tel Aviv this or that way. So I feel that over the years, I've developed a also way of articulating things in a very clear fashion, I feel. And also I've developed a little theory in, in, in a book I wrote when, when COVID broke out, like all tour guides in the world, I was also self-employed and had time to write a book. Don't go looking for it in the shop. It's never been published. It's just a, a PDF, 250 pages in Word right now, waiting to be edited and published. But I'm, I'm going to try to articulate in, in simple words. Right. Let's just say first that when, God willing, this, you've done your job, the war is over, and Israel's economy is going to need some tourism to help bolster it back again, that everyone's going to be eager to travel back to Israel. They can meet you in person as their tour guide and give you a big hug and a big thanks. And while you may not have the official capacity of commander for us out here in the world, for this purpose, you are. So we're we're relying on you for your wisdom and your guidance and teach us what we need to know and what we need to be doing and help you guys out. The mic is yours, my friend, so I know you know exactly what we need to hear. Okay, thank you very, very much. I'll start with a comment that I feel a lot of people, when 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 looking at the Israeli-Arab conflict, they have like a zero-sum game approach. Like a lot of times you'll be guiding students and they'll be saying, oh, can you suggest a suggestion that will solve things 100%? And the answer is no. And then they tell you, ah, so so you know, you can't you know solve it because you don't have... I mean, I, uh, let, let's be adults for a minute. Most problems in the world don't have a simple 100% solution, meaning I will always have crime. I don't say, okay, let's fire all policemen because I'll always have a criminal out there. I say, I want to bring crime down to a level that I can live with. And, you know, I can go running through the park without being mugged. I don't say, okay, let's abolish all police. I always, for example, will have a problem of poverty. I'll always have some guy who will... I don't know, take his money by drugs instead of spending it on his kids' uh, education. I'm always going to have that. I don't fire all social workers and all the treasury people and all the banks because I'm always going to have poor people. I, my approach isn't like a zero-sum approach. I say, I want to. I have problems. I always will. Let me minimize them. So I always will have a problem of Palestinian slash Arab terrorism against Israel. I'll go into one minute and I'll, I'll, I'll define what terrorism is and again, in simple ways so that we can understand what we're dealing with. And uh, terrorism is just a tactic. I'll get to that in a minute. And now let's think, okay, we're always going to have this problem. What can we do to minimize it? For example, Germany lives you know, a, a sort of normal life, even though they've had a terror attack happen here and there. 
Okay. And in France, people live a normal life, even here and there, or in England or in Barcelona, you know, they live a normal life, even though in Spain, I don't, I don't look at it like I'm, you know, obsessively dealing with it and, you know, living in, okay, they have it, but having one, one attack happen once every few years is a situation you're always going to have. So right. we're always going to have it. Let's think of a normal way that we can bring it down and let's understand why it's a lot more whole. The problem is not just with, uh, with Palestinian terrorism, it's a lot wider than that. And, and, and then let's understand how to bring it down. And we'll also, I'll try to mention, I mean, I'm not going to try to mention, I'm, uh, the most important maybe piece for me is to explain why, why the, the Jews that are not currently in the IDF, I feel like are the key. I'll, you know, I'll start with that, okay? Like the IDF has 1,000 times more power than they actually need. I mean, I, I have an air force. Hamas doesn't even own one tank. I mean, the real ratio here in power is that we are at least a thousand times stronger than them. I mean, we have tanks. They don't even own one. I have, I have hundreds of fighter jets. They don't even own one. So the question is not how much force does the IDF have? The IDF has, I don't know, 10 times more reservists called up now and a and hundred times more airplanes than they need. The question, the problem is, if you don't have a credible threat, you're not scaring anybody. Meaning if you, Dan, you say, I'll slap you and I have a gun and I say, Dan, if you slap me, I'll shoot you. Maybe we're in the middle of a mall with 100 people, and you know that I know that I'll get in trouble if I shoot you, so you slap me. You don't care. Like, the threat isn't the credible one. Right. Uh, a, a threat that's not credible is pointless. Like, I have an F-16, but they know I'm not going to use it. I have a huge army, but they know I'm not going to use it. My hands are tied. So the, the, what's, what the IDF needs is not the soldiers that'll be there. It needs their hands not to be tied. And who's holding the IDF hands that's the entire world. Now, in a minute, we'll analyze why. I think there's a very pragmatic reason why right now. And once you diagnose a problem, then then you can start dealing with it. Then you can start curing it. You know, diagnose. That's the most important part. Like if, if you take a car to the shop and they don't diagnose the problem, they, they say, okay, your car won't start. We change your battery. But maybe the problem was the spark plugs. I mean, it might have been or the starter. It might have been a different problem. I mean, you have to diagnose a problem if you want to address it. And if you don't diagnose it properly, then then your odds of fixing a problem are zero. You're not going to fix the right the problem. You're going to address right. something else. We're also limited by Israel has rules of engagement that the other side does not have, meaning that are based on some morality. Like you're you know you warn the civilians like leave go, and as much as Hamas tries to keep them as their shield, if you really just wanted to, couldn't Israel just like erase? <laughs> everything in Gaza right now and and be done with it? If Israel were living with the Palestinians on Mars and we didn't have the world tying our hands down, then I promise you either the either the kidnapped would be back in Israel very quickly, like within like a day with a care package, or Gaza would not exist. Meaning we don't even have to carpet bomb Gaza. We would just close it down and say, guys, no fuel, no medications, no water. I mean, your food will run out. You'll have 2 million people that will starve to death within a week. Now, it's not going to happen because the 2 million people will go to Hamas and hunt them down and say, listen, you're going to release maybe 6,000 Hamas members or terrorists or whatever, but the prices will be 2, 2 million people are going to starve. So with all the people from Gaza will take their guns and instead of aiming their guns towards Israel, they're going to aim those guns towards the Hamas officials and say, hello, this is, this is crazy. The only reason they're not doing it is because they know our hands are tied. Now, what's tying our hands? The answer is the entire world. Now, 
Dan, I don't think this is a theory of Eitan Rund. I don't think it's my theory. I think that if you listen to every single lecture by every single public official in Israel, politician, chiefs of staff, foreign ministers, heads of Mossad and Shabak, and the ex-heads of Mossad and Shabak, the Israeli CIA and FBI equivalent, chiefs of staff, and I'm talking 30 years back, they all agree with me, meaning maybe I'm wrong, but that means they're also wrong too. Meaning it's a, there's no doubt about it that if we were living on Mars with the Palestinians, there would not be a Palestinian-Israeli conflict. If you're, if I always say like, it's a parable I give a lot. If, if, you're, if you're sitting on the train and you're an infant and you're Mike Tyson, that's the ratio here. Right. Hamas is a strong, they're, they're like an infant or Mike Tyson, the heavyweight champion for those who don't know. If you are an infant, you can poke Mike Tyson's eyes and smash him and slap him only if you know his hands are tied. Right. Like if he was just sitting there reading a book and his hands weren't tied, you wouldn't slap him because you know he'll, you know, he'll tear you to shreds in a second. So Hamas wouldn't shoot a rocket if they knew our hands weren't tied. They're only allowing themselves to shoot rockets or kidnap Israelis or do whatever they want because they know our hands are tied. Like guys in the West Bank, when Jeeps drive through the West Bank, Israeli Jeeps, and all the and you see them throwing rocks and throwing, you know, cans of whatever and Molotov cocktails and I don't know what. They're doing it because they know that Jeep is not going to react. If they if they knew that idea of Jeep can stop, a guy can get out and shoot all those guys throwing rocks at him, they wouldn't do it. Right. Meaning they're they're doing it because because they know our hands are tied. And that's what's important to understand. Like, why is the, the world is tying our hands? Well, why are they doing it? Like again, if you make a if you diagnose the problem incorrectly, you're you're not going to solve the problem. Right. So we need to know why why and how are they tying your hands? Well, how are they tying our hands is very simple. They're saying, don't do it. Israel has to practice restraint. And they're flying their diplomats, whether it be John Kerry or whether it be Blinken or whether it be, you know, and they're saying it, you know, like it's it's sort of like a mafia guy who says, if you do this and that, I I I can't guarantee your safety. You know, they're not gonna say I'm gonna tear you. The, they said in the, you know, in the very, you know, I can't, I can't guarantee, you know, your safety, or I can't guarantee that when the the Security Council of the UN, it'll be hard for me to not, you know, America right now is vetoing every anti-Israel resolution. So all they have to do is threaten and they say, look, I don't know if I'm gonna be able to, you know, veto anti-Israel resolutions if you do this and that. The Israeli diplomats are smart enough to understand that's the mafia way of saying your hands are tied. You know, right. you can't function freely. So, and and we need to do that. I mean, if if the American finger doesn't go up vetoing every single resolution against Israel, that one finger, yeah, then then Israel's in trouble, and 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 we know it, and America yeah. knows we know it. I mean, it's not the, you know, it's not like in Friends, you know, they know that we know that they know that we know that they know. I mean, it, it's like it's like a game that everybody everybody's playing it. The question is. Why is the world so obsessively involved in Israel? I mean, the United Nations, you know, they condemn Israel about 20 times a year when Libya, North Africa, Syria, and and Iran get like one condemnation a year. I mean, these are countries where if you look very little, okay, so only 100 guys were, you know, I don't know, executed in North Korea or Iran that we know about it. And like 600,000 people were killed in Syria in the past decade. And they, and I mean, really? I'm just saying the, the bias is so extreme. And also, by the way, you'll say, okay, so I know your next question, you're going to say, well, the UN is a 
a political body and, and you know what can you expect from a body that has so many Muslim countries in it so let me right, give you exactly. an example that of, pe- of people that aren't po- political okay CNN or BBC or the Guardian newspaper I mean they don't have membership of you know a million the Guardian newspaper I mean which does not have I don't know as far as I'm uh, you know as far as I checked it's not Al Jazeera you know there, there are bases in England not in Qatar uh, right. the Guardian newspaper in 2011 mentioned Israel, 1,008 times. That's roughly three times a day. In the same year, it was the beginning of the Arab Spring. There were there were 125 Palestinians killed. And this is if you look at Palestinian stats, you know, like I'm rounding up the numbers. Okay. 120 Palestinians were killed. They mentioned Israel 1,008 times. In the same year, in 2011, they mentioned Iraq 504 times. That's exactly 50%. But there were 4,059 casualties, you know, civilian casualties in Iraq in the same year. So there were almost 35 times more, almost 40 times more people, you know, civilians were killed and it was mentioned half the time. So give or take, that's 80 times more than Israel. And if you say, oh, well, Iraq isn't a democracy. okay, 600 of those people were directly killed in incidents directly involving British soldiers and British soldiers involved in their shooting. I mean, last. so don't tell me double standard. Britain's a democracy, too. You know, like, I mean, this is hundreds of people and they're mentioned half i mean right. it's just so extreme and again this is not a body where you say okay well uh i don't know well so this and this muslim country you know will only you know if you have to i mean okay so it's like that in the un but also in, in the bodies that feed off uh, us off of our intelligence and give us our information you know the the bias is ridiculously clear now it's annoying it's annoying when you see the UN super biased, and it's annoying when you see uh, the media super biased towards Israel. But more than annoying, it's it's inherent. That is what's holding us down. Like you're going to ask me, by the way, and I, I ask that you ask me because I think it's an important thing. Is oh, why does Israel care? It, it, Israel cares uh, not because of what the Guardian or the BBC say. I don't care about the world public opinion. Uh, you know, I don't know, in journalists. I care when when governments come and threaten me and they say, oh, if you're going to upset us and you better, you know, practice restraint, we're not going to sell you submarines. Now, submarines are something that we need, you know, against Iran to deter Iran. And Iran is a very, very big threat. We have to ask ourselves, why? Why are they so involved? So I believe I'm a strong believer in in doing things in a structured way. Okay, so I'm going to go really fast. And I'm going to say things that are, I think, clear to everybody here, but eventually it's going to, I'm going to try to elaborate. And okay, so here goes. When I hear an American president saying the war on terror, that's like a term we've heard in the past decade, a lot, in the past two decades, a lot since 9-11, the war on terror, the war on terror, I have to hold my stomach not to laugh so hard because terror is a tactic. Um, it's used by anybody who is not strong enough to confront you directly. It's like saying in World War II, uh, England was fighting bombs and airplanes and boats. No, they were fighting Nazi Germany. They were using soldiers, tanks, bombs, and artillery. Like the artillery is not the thing you're fighting. It's the tool the guy you're fighting is using. You're fighting Nazi Germany. He's using bombs, airplanes, and boats. I mean, when they say war on terrorism, terror could be used by Italian mafia. It could be used by a drug cartel in, uh, in South America. Terror is a method used by anybody who is not strong enough to directly confront you. Now, the Arabs tried to annihilate Israel a few times using tanks, bombs, and airplanes. Also, 1948, 1967, 1973, they tried a few times, 
And they've reached a conclusion that they can't with bombs and airplanes because our bombs and airplanes are faster, or have better range, or more direct. So they said they went to a strategy in Arabic. It's called mukawama resistance. We can't confront them directly, so we're going to resist. We're going to tire them out. We're going to make an attrition war type of thing, and and eventually, you know, we're going to get bite after bite and whatever. But again, we can't directly annihilate them, so we're going to try to make at least their thing here very very costly. That's what terrorism is, and again, it's. It doesn't matter. You can argue that not all the Palestinians are terrorists, which is true. 99.9% of them are good and hardworking people and uh, all good. I'm just saying, I in Israel, from my perspective, I'm always going to have this. You know, I'm always going to have a guy who's going to pick up. But I don't need all, I don't know, 4 million Palestinians living in Israel and the West Bank and I don't know, Gaza, 6 million people. I don't need them all to pick up, I don't know, knives and stab people. It's enough that one guy stabs people, everyone else is afraid. Okay. So, it's obviously not everybody. It's, a, how do you say, minuscule. It's, it's like one to a trillion. It doesn't matter. Uh, everybody else is scared. They don't know when it's going to hit them. And towards the end, I'll elaborate. Uh, why does it happen sporadically? And how come that guy who I knew as a peaceful Muslim one day just picked up a knife and stabbed people? I think that's very important to understand. So I'm always going to have terrorism. Terrorism happens with one of two things. It has like two pillars, sort of, I'll call it, is motivation. And one is ability. Okay, ability, let's say if you take away the one of those two things doesn't happen. If you take away the ability of a terrorist, okay, let's say he's very motivated to blow up airplanes, but you know, I don't know. I I I walk him through screening machines so many times that even if you're very motivated, uh, you know, you're not gonna manage to I take away your ability or I confiscate a gun before somebody uses it, or I arrest a terrorist before, you know, or whatever. Like you take the ability away, it doesn't happen, even if the guy's very motivated. And the other uh, thing is to, to take away the motivation, meaning let's say I have the ability to blow up an airplane, but if I'm not interested in blowing up an airplane, like why would I, why, why would I do that? Right. Even if I have the ability, I, I need the motivation. If I don't have the motivation, I wouldn't do it. Now, given that the Palestinians will always have the motivation and they'll always have the ability, um, meaning, you know, terrorist acts have happened with trucks and with knives. You know, every knife that cuts salad can also stab people. I was in a terror attack a few years ago in 2017. I was injured and a few more people were killed in an attack that I was involved in. And the guy ran into me in a group of soldiers I was guiding, injuring me and, and killing four other uh, cadets in the IDF officer's course. He was using a, he was using a truck, meaning he, he suddenly pulled the wheel and smashed into us. He didn't have a gun. He had a truck. What am I going to do? I'm going to take away all their truck, uh, their car keys. I mean, they'll always have the ability. But the second thing is motivation. Again, even if I'm very motivated to blow up an airplane, uh, sorry, if I have the ability to blow up an airplane, but I'm not motivated, like, why would I want to do that? I'm not going to blow it up. I mean, you have to have motivation. Now, given that they'll always have the ability, again, like I was hurting a tire attack, like I use a truck. I'm not going to take away all the car keys. And every car that drives people can also run people over. And every knife that's used to cut salad can also be used to stab people, God forbid. Um, so they'll always have the ability and they'll always have the motivation. It doesn't matter if they want to fight you for national reasons because in their perception you took their land in 1948 and or or for religious reasons because Israel is a theological uh, problem for for Islam it doesn't it doesn't matter why but it's just given it's it's you know they'll always have the motivation and they'll always have the ability so so how do you take it away you do it's, it's called counter motivation meaning okay you always have the motivation you always have the ability but I can I can give you a counter motivation for example you're motivated to go to sleep at nights 
I say, I want you to work in my shop at night, my 7-Eleven or something. And you say, I don't want to do it. And I say, okay, I'll give you a higher salary. Okay, I'll give you triple the salary. You say deal, meaning the motivation is something I can affect. I can't affect the ability, but I can affect the motivation. I can, I can for example, if you talk on the phone when you're driving, I'll give you a thousand shekel fine, you know, a thousand dollar fine. You really want to pick up that call. It's really important, but you know that if you'll be caught talking on the phone, you'll you'll get a very big fine. So I can affect their motivation. Now it's not under the table. This is game theory. I will give you sticks and carrots to make you act the way that I would want you to act. And again, it's all it's all on the table. Not nothing here is under the table. And now the problem is that I'm not deterring them. The, 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 if you let's say talk on the phone and and you know you get a really high fine that deters you. If you'd only get a three dollar fine, it wouldn't get the effect. It wouldn't deter you from doing this. But if I if I give you a big fine, then okay, a thousand dollars, you say okay, I'm not gonna you know I'm not gonna risk it. It's expensive. So the problem is that in order to deter the Palestinians from doing these acts of terrorism, we have to be disproportionate, okay, or it does not achieve that deterrence. For example, if if you Dan hate me. I say, Dan, if you slap me, I'll slap you once. Okay. Let's say you hate me badly enough that you don't mind slapping me. Like, even if it means I'll slap you back. But if I say, Dan, if you slap me, I'll burn down your car. You know, that that already, you know, maybe you like your car more than, you know, you want to slap me, you know? So Israel can easily deter. Like, again, we have, we have an Air Force and they don't even have a tank. We're in a Mike Tyson infant match here. So the question is, why am I not doing it? Okay, and that 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 leads me to again, we have to be disproportionate. Why are we not being disproportionate? Because we know we have to. Without that, there's no virtue. There's no it's pointless. I mean, let's say we're bombing airplanes, we're bombing, sorry, targets in, in Gaza. I think for the past 25 years, I think we've been bombing targets, and we see that they don't mind dying, and they don't mind that you bomb real estate of theirs. It doesn't matter if it's a building or a hospital or, or a kindergarten. They don't mind the building. Like if you go to a terrorist and you say, I'm going to buy me your building, that's not a deterrent. Right. He knows the World Bank will build him a new building. I mean, for 25 years, you've been trying the same thing, bombing different targets, I'll call it. You know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, in, I'm currently in the IDF. I'm, don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not, you know, undermining everything they're doing. Like it's actually important. Like if you want to take away the ability, yeah, you got to go in and you got to blow up all their rockets and this and that. And, 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 you know, it's actually important that we do it. I'm just saying they're always going to do it again. You know, count five years, count 10 years, everything you've blown up is going to be there again. The only thing that can prevent them from using those rockets is the deterrent. As, as you coming and say, if you show me once, I will give you such a strong slap, you'll be deterred from using those rockets you have. Now, whatever we're doing now, it's not it's not deterring them. It's like it's like bombing air, you know, bombs in the ocean. It's killing fish. I mean, you're like, oh, you have to do something. Okay, we're doing something. But it's to quiet the Israeli public down more than it is to really deter deter Hamas. Uh, Professor Bernard Lewis, one of the leading Middle East professors in the world, he put it so eloquently, he said, listen, if you take a person who doesn't mind dying, meaning a suicide bomber, and you threaten him with uh, by killing him, that's not a deterrent. That's an inducement. You know, the guy wants to die. Any other country that has much damage to their infrastructure that's already been done in Gaza would have come forward and say, all right, let's talk. Let's let's work this out. Let's negotiate. But you're right. It has not deterred them one bit. It doesn't deter them. And by the way, it, I, I think about it from their side. Yeah, they they know the World Bank is going to go again and rebuild everything that's been demolished. So if I threaten you, but let's say your dad's a billionaire, okay, I'll I'll, br- I'll buy your car. That that doesn't threaten you. You're like, okay, I'll buy a new one in the month. You know, I mean, like it it doesn't. 
the question is, why are we not using our power? We could deter them. I can give you three examples, okay? Like none, you know, if 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 Israel had to like blow stuff up and that would achieve deterrence or whatever, Israel can blow carpet bomb Gaza, not live a living mosquito and a, or nonetheless a person fox or a snake, you know, within five minutes. Uh, like Israel really has the firepower to do this. We're not doing it. And by the way, we don't have to. I'm going to give you three different examples that are nonviolent, okay, to how we can deter them. Let's say these, uh, that's a misconception, by the way, that people have. They say, oh, well, a person who doesn't mind dying, you can't deter them. The guy doesn't even mind dying. Why are you going to deter him? They're going to blow up your car. Or the guy doesn't mind getting killed. That, that's a misconception because that guy doesn't value life the way people in the West value life. Meaning for people in the, in the West, they say, you're going to take away his life. That's terrible. But for people in the Arab world that are, I don't know, the Muslim world that are convinced they're going to Allah Mabah, the you know, the afterlife, and they're convinced they're going to, you know, get 70 versions, blah, 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 that, that that's not a deterrent. They'll have malls and, and schools and, and squares and streets named after him. And, you know, it's not a deterrent. But, for example, okay, in Arabic, I don't know if you speak Arabic, this is called Taufan al-Aqsa, the Al-Aqsa storm is what they call this operation. They give it a name literally within the first day. And... If you come and you say, okay, Al-Aqsa, Al-Aqsa, you tied this on, I'm closing Al-Aqsa for, for, for Muslims from Palestinian descent. Don't, you don't want the whole Muslim world, you know, getting around. So don't say, listen, if you're a Muslim from London or a Muslim from, I don't know, yeah, Jordan or whatever, you know, yeah, you're a Muslim from I don't know, Chicago or Malmo, you can go to Temple Mount, all good. Just bring your foreign passport and you can go on, okay? But if you're a Palestinian, Temple Mount is closed for you. They're going to see rabbis and evangelicals on the Temple Mount, and a few policemen smoking cigarettes and chatting, and they'll see zero Palestinians. That hurts Palestinians more than dying, okay? If you take a Palestinian and you know, for example, that the guy doesn't mind dying, but he minds land being, they call it in Arabic sumud, like sticking to the land. If you take away land from him, it, let's say you uproot an olive grove. It sounds silly. The guy doesn't mind dying. But if you come and you tell them, I will take an acre of olive uh, trees and I will uproot them, that is more a deterrent than, than, than coming and telling them I'm going to kill you. Okay, for example, they feel, again, it doesn't matter if we feel, they feel that they and, 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 and the Palestinians in the West Bank are from the same nation. That, that's the way they feel. Okay, you can argue in this and that, they do. They feel it. So if you tell them, listen, I'm going to hurt people in the West Bank, for example, I'm going to take a brigade and I'm going to circle a, a little complex of, I don't know, 50 Palestinian families. And every minute that those hostages are not back in Israel, our kidnappees are not back in Israel, we are evicting a family from the West Bank. And if you say, oh, nobody wants to take them. Okay, so we're evicting them to Gaza. Okay. Now you say for every minute. Now in the first minute, and you video this, yeah, you, you put on the video. In the first minute, you're going to have women crying and, uh, you know, oh my God, oh my God, Hamas, what are you doing? What are you doing to us? Within 10 minutes, you'll have 10 families. All you do is you, at gunpoint, load them onto a bus, say, guys, goodbye, and you blow up the building. Within 10 families that this happens to, I promise you Hamas is going to be thinking, wait a minute, what have we done? And I promise you that by the time you get to 25 families and you kick away a whole clan, the, the Hamas is going to be, oh, shoot, where are those hostages hiding? We have to bring them to the Israeli border quickly. And by the time you get to the 50th family, all those kidnappees are going to be on the Israeli border where the care package and the Israeli flag and Hamas begging you to stop evicting people from the West Bank, realizing this is what they've done. Now, if I just gave, again, I, I gave three examples which were nonviolent, okay, or at least not, you know, with killing people and whatever, blowing stuff up. I mean, Israel can easily do it. 
again, this brings me to that question. Why are we not doing it? You know, like, I don't know if I'm giving a good example, but I'm, I'm sure even if I'm not getting the details, you know, right, th- this, is, this is a very realistic example. You know, when you have doctors, doctors have to diagnose a problem really well. Let's say two patients come and they have very similar symptoms. Okay, you're convinced to have leukemia and you go to a hematologist and he gives them chemotherapy. But what happens if one guy has AIDS, for example? Now, the symptoms look just like, just like leukemia. But only if you give one specific test, you can actually find a difference or whatever. Again, the symptoms could be 99.9 the same. But for a doctor, that's why you go to med school for so long. You know, you have to really, you know, use your brains, you know, figure out why, what is wrong. If you take a guy with HIV and you give him chemotherapy, you're not, you're not helping him. Okay. You're, you're making things way worse. So why are we tied down? Why is the whole world tying us down? It's, it's, it's so, it's so annoying. And, and so here's, so here, here are the three answers that you usually get. Okay. Why is the world tying us down? People say, cause they're anti-Semitic. Then I'll tell you why I disagree with this and why it's more, it's more than disagree. It's, I feel that when people say the world is being anti-Semitic, that drives them to being passive, meaning instead of being active about things, they're being passive because you say, well, I know nothing I can do to change it. The world has always been like that for like 2000 years of recorded history, you know, and, and so you're okay. So the world's anti-Semitic, there's nothing we can do about it. Now I'll tell you why I don't think this is true. Again, it might be an ingredient, but I don't agree. I don't think it's, it's the major ingredient. And I'll tell you why, because Croatia and Latvia and Bosnia and Poland and uh, Greece and I don't know, Eastern European countries are way more anti-Semitic than Western European countries. And yet we're, we're not on the headlines and on the media of, of Eastern Europe every five minutes. I mean, I don't see the Polish equivalent of Anthony Blinken, you know, or John Kerry being flown into Israel a thousand times. And I don't see them giving so much money to the Palestinians. And I don't see so much involvement in the newspapers in Hungary. About, now, if the reason was anti-Semitism, you're going to say, oh, they don't have money to give Palestinians. And okay, but at least you'd see that on the newspapers. At least the politicians would be talking about Israel, you know, as much. Right. But I, I, I see them. I see them talking about, you know, in Western Europe, which are less anti-Semitic. I see it, them being obsessed with Israel and the Palestinians, and they're less anti-Semitic than than people in Western Europe. So, if the reason was anti-Semitism, I'd see myself on page one in the newspaper in Hungary, and I don't even. I mean, I'm in page six on the bottom. I mean. You know, like, oh, by the way, you know, there was a uh, there was an earthquake in Taiwan. By the way, Israel's fighting Palestinians. I mean, I wouldn't be there. I would be in the headline. So I think anti-Semitism might be a reason, but I, I don't think it's the reason. OK, many people say, uh, well, the Palestinians are perceived as the underdog. So the world is supporting them because they're the underdog. You know, there's like 30 conflicts happening in the world right now that are like bloody conflicts. And in every single one of them, there's an underdog. I mean, in every single one. Right. There's another dog in Taiwan and China, and there's an underdog in Sahara and uh, Western Sahara and uh, and uh, Morocco, and there's an underdog in in, in in Cyprus, you know, with uh, Greece and Turkey. Every conflict in the world has an underdog. Why are they obsessed with one underdog while they neglect twenty others? Okay, I agree. The Palestinians are weaker. They're they looked at the David in front of Israel, the Goliath. Great, but there's thirty under underdogs that are that are far more underdoggy. I mean, like you know, like where. Uh, Horrible attrition are taking place and massacres and, and you name it. I mean, every 
every tribal conflict in, in, in Africa, you know, also has an underdog and a lot more juicy details than, you know, the Palestinians where a hundred guys are getting killed a year sometimes. I mean, with all due respect, you know, it's, it's so many people say, oh, well, if Israel is going to be disproportionate, then they have to, if Israel is going to be disproportionate, so the Arab world will be upset and they won't sell oil to the West and we rely on Arab oil. Now, I'll tell you, this was true in the 90s, okay? And in the, in the, in the 60s and 70s, it was true because of weapons. Like, you know, they were afraid that the, if we would react disproportionately, so the Arabs wouldn't buy weapons off the West. So the West was like, you know, sort of like, okay, the financial implications will be terrible and we have to do it. But the Arab world doesn't sell so much. They don't buy so many weapons from the West anymore. And also oil. I, I don't know, since fracking, the biggest supplier of oil in the world is the United States of America. And it's no longer, no longer Saudi Arabia. They're not as reliant on Arab oil as, as they used to be in the 90s and, and weaponry as they used to be in the 70s. So I don't think that it's that. It's that. I, think, I think there's another reason. So what is the reason? I think the reason they see that we have to be disproportionate. And what they see is a much bigger risk than, than the weapons and the anti-Semitism. And what they see today is they see, the, they, in their perception, the world right now is in a clash of civilizations, as Samuel Huntington put it in his book 30 years ago, between the Arab world and the, and the Western world. And all these countries in Western Europe have a lot of Muslims in them. And they, they don't know when a Muslim who sees himself, his self-perception, he, is, he sees himself as a soldier in the clash of civilizations, as a soldier in, in, in for the Muslim interest. He, and, and that's the way he feels, again, and you don't know when he's going to come and do that. And if Israel is going to be dis- disproportionate, this might rile up and might upset their own local Muslim population. If dealing with Israel, the, the involvement in Israel, and how much money do they give the Palestinians, it doesn't go by how anti-Semitic you are. It goes by a correlation of how many Muslims you have. So they are dead scared of their own local Muslim population. Again, this is not me. You can go on YouTube and you can see this. And it's, it's, they're really, really, really scared. If it's an insurgency. That's what's so scary about it. If, if Libya tomorrow started a war against France, France would crush them in five minutes. But if it's not a, it, it's not a, a it's an insurgency. Like a guy, his name is Mustafa, and he's a truck driver in London or in France or in Malmo. And until the moment he pulls the wheel and starts running people over, he's okay. Until that, it, it's much harder to deal with. You right. can deal with a tank bomb, an airplane, blow it up. You can't deal with a guy, half of your, I don't know, and you know, the financial implications are insane. Think, let's say, for example, if 10% of London is Muslim and 10% of Heathrow Airport are Muslim, they'll say about 1,000 people working, or uh, sorry, 10,000 people working, so 1,000 of them are Muslims. You know, people stamping your passports, loading, I don't know, suitcases on airplanes. If one out of those 1,000 people is riled up because of what Israel is doing in Gaza, for example, and he leaves a burning cigarette in the airplane, you wake up in the morning to a burnt Dreamliner, that's like 450 million euros on eBay. I mean, it's very... The financial implication that they are so scared of is so huge, and Israel's relevant. When a thousand people die in Syria, they don't care. When a thousand people die in Darfur, they don't care. They care only when it's if it's one Palestinian in Janine who gets scraped because that is relevant for them. Now, what we can do in in the whole world is come and tell them, listen, you have a bully on the block. In 1938, that bully on the block was Hitler who was saying, I need more room. And he built a huge air force and artillery corps and everything. And everyone was scared of Hitler. And they appeased him. Neville flew. And he was like, okay, World War I killed 14 million people. I don't want to bring another World War II, Givald. So I'm going to, you know, I'm going to appease the bully on the block. And he signed with De Soussi and De Lidier and everybody. 
And he signed an agreement saying, you can take the Sudetla and Czechoslovakia, and we're not going to intervene. And he was genuinely convinced that he's, he's doing the right thing. You know, and now by appeasing the bully on the block, what did he do? He, he, Hitler went in Sudetland within like, what, six days? And he conquered the Sudetland of Czechoslovakia. And, and Neville Chamberlain said, we're going to have peace in our time. And Churchill said, we, Britain had the, the choice between the disgrace and a war. We chose disgrace. What we'll get in return is a war. And within 11 months, what Hitler did is he went right through Sudetland of Poland and he went and conquered you know, into Poland through Sudetland of Czechoslovakia. When Benjamin Netanyahu, and I'm going to give you a theory in 10 seconds, I don't think that's a theory that I have. When Benjamin Netanyahu, Bibi Netanyahu, goes to the UN, he says Iran, 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 he also says one sentence, he says Israel is not going to be Sudetland of 2014, or Israel is not going to be you know, Czechoslovakia of 2015, or I am today's Winston Churchill. I, I, again, maybe, uh, and by the way, this is not just Bibi's perception. Bennett said the same thing. And Yerushalayim said, the number of Israeli politicians that drew a parable between Israel and Czechoslovakia, you are trying to appease the bully on the block by taking a third country you don't care about and saying, okay, bully, take that country, leave us alone. It's not preventing a second world war. It's creating one. Now you ask me, what can we do about it? The answer is we can tell the world whether it be in the United States, whether it be in Austria, whether it be in Germany, whether it be in England, whether it be in Italy, anywhere that has Muslims, and come and say, listen, if you think you are appeasing your bully on the block by taking a third country that you don't care about, Israel, let their interests go down the drain, force their hands tied, then, then, then we're, we're, you know, you're bringing a horrific future for your children. That's where we need to stand. We need to tell our representatives and our public officials and the future of the these parties and people and say, listen, it doesn't matter if you're anti-Semitic and you hate Jews. I'm not going to change that. But if you love your own wife, if you want to go to the supermarket and you want your children to be able to go to a horseback riding course or a gym course or gymnastics after school, or I don't know what, and you don't want to be afraid. You care about your own daughter. Do you care about your own life? Do you care about your own parents? Do you care about your life, Johan? And Jorg, and I don't know what, and Marie, and, and Pierre, and, and Harry. I mean, do you care about your own life? You better support Israel. Because if you don't support Israel, the World War I lesson shouldn't have been what England, uh, what, what the world learned, what England learned, the, the lesson they learned was the wrong one. They learned the use of force is bad. The lesson they should have learned is bet, it's better to use a little force in an earlier stage rather than have to use a dozen times more force in a later on stage. They have to learn now and say, listen, it's better to use force. Correct. If if they have, if right now they support as well, they're going to have a mess. Correct. But the mess, if they don't, will be worse. And that's why we are the frontline soldiers. We on, on social media and talking to politicians and persuading the public and saying, listen, it's it's not, has nothing, has less to do with anti-Semitism, even if you're a neo-Nazi. Okay. Marie Le Pen, her dad was a Nazi. She's a neo-Nazi. Half her voters are neo-Nazi. But they understand this. That's why the right wing in Europe, by the way, is getting much stronger and they're flagging Israeli flags. A lot of them are neo-Nazis. Why are they flagging Israeli flags? Because they feel, even if I'm just articulating in words, they feel very strongly that the Muslims are more of a threat. They saw, you know, I don't know, two months ago in the riots in, in, in Paris, they've seen Muslims and immigrants burning thousands of their cars. The, the Jews didn't. Okay. So as much as they don't like Jews, okay, they have big noses, they're this, they're that, they have a million stereotypes, great. The protocols of the Elder Zion, great. They live it, they breathe it. But they're not the guys burning their cars. The guy right. who burned my car last week, his name is Mustafa or Muhammad. And they feel, and that's why the AFD party in Germany and Vox party in Spain and Maloney in, in Italy, and the right is rising a lot. 
in Europe. And the right, as much as they have neo-Nazis, I feel they're more supportive of Israel. Now, what we need to do is to talk to the younger generation of the leadership of these parties and convince them and say, listen, it can go either way. It can go towards, oh, so we don't like our Muslims, but you know, we're going to keep tying your hands. Okay. And, that, and then, then we're in a really big problem. Or it can be in them saying, listen, the way that we can teach our own Muslims that we're strong is by standing firmly for what we stand for. And that's by supporting Israel. So we, Dan, in, in this podcast, all, all your listeners, that you are the key. You are the key to Israel not having their hands tied. And again, once we don't have our hands tied, then we can function. And by the way, you don't need to use your gun or your tank or your airplane to achieve deterrence. It's enough that you have a credible threat. If you then know that I can use my gun because you and me are alone in the Sahara Desert or in Mars, I don't need to use my gun. You know that I could. And you're not going to slap me if you know that I can shoot you. Okay. So basically the idea here is that other nations, they can be total anti-Semitic, hate Jews. It doesn't matter. You bring the argument back to the fact that it's in their own self-interest because of the, the Muslim populations in their own countries to to support Israel, to know that that your hands aren't going to be limited and, and their hands aren't going to be limited. And, and that's what's going to create more of a peaceful society in, in their own countries. Is that the that's the idea here? Yeah. And I want to add the one thing I asked you before to remind me, I remember it alone now, thank God. Many people can say, oh, well, why does the world care? Why does Israel care about the world opinion? Let them say to the world, go fly a kite. We don't care. Let me explain why it's not so easy. There's one country in the world, which is the exception to all Muslim countries, Iran. All Muslim countries, the people are religious and they're becoming more and more religious, but the government is a secular government. Okay. There's one country which is the exception. The people have a lot of secularity to them, but the leadership, the rulership, I should say, is a bunch of fanatic religious guys. And that's Iran. Now, Iran want to become nuclear. I don't think this is a secret. And if they become nuclear, if one, again, I'll articulate in 10 seconds, they're a bunch of Shiites, they're a minority in the Muslim world, and they've been persecuted, and they want to retrieve their pride, which they feel they, they should be the leaders of the Muslim world, not, not the Sunnis. And the way Israel is like the instrument to do that, they, if, if they, for example, become nuclear, and they one nuclear ma- missile manages to hit uh, Batyam or Hulon, they can kill 30,000 people. That's more than all the Sunni countries did in, in 75 years. So what would that do for their prestige? And again, Muslims today, a lot of Muslims are moving towards Shiism and are saying, whoa, these guys are, I mean, you know, the, they're the ones really fighting the war. They're the ones supporting Hamas, you know, and, 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 and uh, while all the other Sunni countries are signing agreements with the Jews, they're, they're supporting them. And countries say this, uh, this is on YouTube. You don't have to, they go to, you know, Professor Dan Shiftan or, 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 or different public officials and they say, listen, you know that you, you, we know that you need us for Iran. Iran is not like a little country which had a nuclear plant, uh, you know, I don't know, Syria, and one location, blow it up, you're done. Iran is a huge country with 80 million people, with high-tech and smart people, and the very, how do you say, diversified, you know, like like nuclear system and, and, and plan. And it's not like, okay, one bomb, boom, you're done. The world, Germany says, you know, we know that you know, you know, that, that you need us. You can't bomb Iran alone tomorrow. You need the world, the Western world to be with you. You need, you need it back. And, and we know that you need us. We know, we know that you need us. So you better not upset our Muslims or you're alone with Iran. Now, again, if you're a prime minister, it doesn't matter if your name is Yair Lapid or your name is Naftali Bennett or your name is Bibi Netanyahu, you're, you're caught between a rock and a hard place here. You have to appease the Israeli public, which wants something to be done. 
and they feel it. And on the other hand, you know that, you know, if you do it, if you do anything that might rile up Muslims, then Angelina Merkel won't sell you some rings. Now, I have to add one thing. This is, by the way, when I said it's a lot more grand, it's not only between us and Gaza. Anything that might fall under the title might upset Muslims. We act like zero backbone creatures. It could be Bedouins building illegally houses in Israel. It could be the fact that Temple Mount has horrible discrimination against Jews. It could be the fact that up north, there's what we call protection, like, you know, acting like a mafia by thousands. Every business like plays, you know, to pays to the, you know, uh, underground, uh, how do you say, uh, organizations, which are all run by Arabs and or many of them are run by Arabs and it's illegal building, you know, any anything that might fall under the title might upset Arabs. I mean, if Israel wanted no illegal buildings of Bedouins, they would just bring tractors and bulldoze it all down within like a day, you know, but Angelina Merkel flies into Israel and says, don't you dare evict I don't know, six caravans or seven tents with Bedouins and Khan al-Akhma, which are located like what? If you go down from Jerusalem to Dead Sea, you pass them. It's like six, I don't know, six meters or seven meters from the highway, you know? But Angelina Merkel, I mean, I'm trying to think, did she ever fly to any other country to tell people don't evict six random guys who built an illegal camp, you know, uh, I don't know, uh, you know, half a block from a highway? No, she doesn't care about that in Croatia. She doesn't care about that in Nicaragua or Congo. But in Israel, it's relevant for her. Because if we evict them, it's seen, it's perceived by, oh, the West is attacking us, the Muslims, and then her Muslims can riot. Yeah, and that's why we, that's why we hold a key role in convincing the public that you, you, I really mean it, you are needed more than I need soldiers in the IDF. I need you again, whether it be on social media, whether it be talking to politicians, talking to reporters and arguing our argument, it's in the West's interest not to tie our hands. And again, if our hands are tied, are untied, then the IDF can 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 deter and slash win this campaign. They can't do it without your help. Beautiful. Okay. So thank you so much for bringing clarity on the whole situation. The you know now we have a clear understanding of what what is deterrence. You know, with within Gaza, the fact that no one cares about whether they lose their life, but land is an issue. And really how to get the rest of the nations not out of love of Israel, but love of themselves by wanting to really, you know, their concerns about appeasing their Muslim population. I appreciate you sharing your wisdom with us on this matter, Aten. And uh, is there anything else you want to share with the audience before we uh, we we end this uh, recording? Yeah, just one thing. Yeah. I'm very, very easy to find on social media. I'm very, very easy to find. On Instagram, I'm the only Aten Rund, E-Y-T-A-N-R-U-N-D. Same thing on Facebook. And if there's anybody here who will listen to this podcast, who speaks a European language and could make little clips and add subtitles in Swedish or German or in, I don't know, you know, in, 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 in French or in, I don't know, Belgium or in, please reach out to me and I will give you 100 ideas how you can influence the public opinion. I, I have an arsenal of ideas and no time to deal with them, but I can lay it on. And, and I feel that you guys are the frontline soldiers. Uh, and, and if this battleground is in the world public opinion, it's not the IDF that are the frontline soldiers, it's you guys. All right. So we now we know what our messaging is. Get it out to the public at large, our representatives, government officials. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you very, very much for having me then. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Torch so they can continue to spread Torah wisdom to the world by making a donation at torchweb.org and clicking donate in the top right corner of the page.